0: As one traveled in Louisiana on the I-10 to the Mississippi River bridge, there was a large billboard with a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And beneath this picture of Jesus on the cross were these words in bold, it's your move. When I think of those words, I do appreciate what the billboard and the message of the billboard is. Because there is a part of the Christian life and the Christian faith which demands human responsibility. The Bible tells us that we are to repent of sin and we are to believe. There is a part that man plays in salvation. But it is misleading to suggest that salvation or the Christian life has two parts. That is, God's part or Christ's part in salvation and then our part. Because in reality, if we read the scriptures, We will recognize that salvation and the Christian life is all God's move. It is not that God does something and then says to us, now it's your move. I have saved you or Christ has died for you. Now it's over to you to find your way through to heaven. All of salvation from its commencement to its conclusion is the work of God. And even though we play a part in salvation in the sense that we believe and we repent, it is God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We sense that salvation then is not merely our move, but Christ's move from first to last. And we sense some of this in the passage that we read together, in this high priestly prayer, this so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. Because our Lord, not only does he save his people, but he prays in this prayer for their sanctification and for their perfection, for their preservation. I want us to recognize that when Jesus prays in John 17, these are not mere wishes, that he's uttering to God, this prayer is effective because whatever the the son asks the father, he must receive because he always pleases his father. And what I'm arguing then, as I have made clear, I believe, weeks ago, that our Lord's prayer must be seen as effective, that it accomplishes what it requires. And so you see, Jesus is... Not only in the business of saving his people by dying on the cross, but in the business of preserving them to the end by praying for them. Now we notice that in chapter 17 of John, verses 1 to 5, records our Lord's prayer for himself. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for the disciples, that immediate group of disciples who were with him. But in verses 20 to 26, He prays for future believers, that that is for us, those of us who would have heard the testimony of the original disciples and be converted and subsequent to that all who come to faith based on the testimony of the apostles that we have in the scriptures. What I want us to do then is to concentrate on verses 20 to 26 and the Lord's prayer for future believers. Notice what he says in verse 20. Jesus is still praying to the Father. I do not pray for these alone, that is, for my immediate disciples, my immediate twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's speaking then of the future disciples who will turn to him because of the testimony of the apostles. Our Lord, as he prays for these future believers, for all who have been converted, after the apostles, until today and in the future, he prays two main things. First of all, he prays for unity, and secondly, he prays for glory. We're going to, on, at least today, reflect on these twin themes, the prayer for unity. First of all, let's consider our Lord's petition for unity among his future disciples and followers. He states, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a theme that is repeated in chapter 17, the the theme of Christian unity you will notice that in verse 11 our Lord Jesus introduces this theme he says now I no longer am in the world but these are in the world and I come to you Holy Father keep through your name those you have given me that they may be one as we are so he began in verse 11 to call upon the Lord to preserve them in unity In verse 21, which I have read, the Lord says, I pray that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. In verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So then, the main prayer for the future believers is that they might be united. United. These are believers who would come from various cultures and various language and people groups. And there will always be the tendency to fragmentation, to disunity. And so he appeals to the Father that he might keep his disciples unified. But when we think of the unity for which Jesus prays, we need to define this unity. I want to suggest that the unity that he prays for is first analogical. Analogical. That is comparable to. The unity that he's calling for is analogical. That is a unity that is compared to the unity of the Father and of the Son. So let's look again at verse 21. I pray, he's saying, that there may be one as you, Father, are in me. And I in you. In verse 22, he says, The glory you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So the unity that he's calling for is a particular unity. It is a unity that is analogical, that is comparable to, that resembles the unity between the Father and the Son. But having said that the unity that he... He desires for the disciples must be a unity based upon the unity of the Father and Son. We must step back and clarify that there is a unity between God the Father and the Son, and of course the Holy Spirit, that cannot be reflected by man. There is this original unity, an inseparable unity, an infinite unity of essence, of being, where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share the same being. That is why God is one. There are three persons in the Godhead, three distinctions, personal distinctions in the Godhead, but there's only one substance or one being. God is one. So there's a unity of essence that exists among the triune persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you and I as human beings cannot reflect. But the unity that he desires, which is a unity like that of the Father and Son, is first, in a sense, capable of being reflected by believers. See, there's another kind of unity that the Father and Son enjoys. First, there is a unity of love. Jesus will stress in this passage the love that the Father has for him. In verse 23, he says, In chapter 17 of John, I am in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In verse 24, our Lord Jesus says, You loved me before the foundation of the world. There is a union, a unity between the Father and Son, which is a unity of love. That from eternity, God the Father has always loved the Son, and that love is reciprocated by the Son for the Father. For Jesus in John 14 could say, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and so as the Father has given me commandment, so I do. So our Lord Jesus says he loves the Father and he reflects it by his obedience to the Father. There is a union of love between the father and son that believers are to demonstrate. They are to be united in love. We see that in John 13 where Jesus says, A new commandment I, gave, I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And this is, my, this is how you will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. So the Father and Son are united in love and believers are to reflect and resemble the Father and Son in their union of love. But the Father and Son are also united not only in love but in purpose. Jesus will make it clear throughout the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John that he always does the will of the father he does not come to do his will the words that he speaks are the words he has received from his father he's on the same page with the father he always obeys the father he always carries out the mission of the father there is a unity of purpose between the father and the son and those of us who are to be one and united as God's people, must also, be like the Father and Son, be united not only in love, but also in purpose. But the Father and Son are also united in not only love, and not only in purpose, but also in holiness, and in truth. John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. There to be, holy people because god himself is holy our lord jesus christ is holy and he is the god of truth so believers are to be united yes in love in purpose in holiness and in truth so jesus prays that they may be one as we are one and i'm suggesting that the unity that we should reflect that is reflected between the father and son is a unity of love or of purpose of truth and of holiness But the unity that Jesus seeks among his people is not only analogical, that is comparable to his unity with the Father. The unity that he seeks for the disciples and for his church must be Christological. That is a unity in him. A unity that is forged in relationship with Christ. So in verse 21, Our Lord says as he prays for this unity that they all may be one as you Father are in me and I in you. That they may be one in us. You see the unity that he is speaking of is not merely outwardly but a unity in Christ and in the Father. Now you will notice that our Lord will continue and he will show in verse 23 that the unity... That they have is one that must be in him. In verse 23, I in them and you in me. This is not a superficial unity that he's looking for among his followers. But it is a unity that is essentially spiritual. Because he wants them to be in him. To be joined to him like a body is joined to the head. And like a branch is joined to a tree in a vital living union. I in them, and you in me. He wants them to be united to him. And it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit who dwells in the Son, who comes and indwells the believer. And it is because of the Spirit in Christ and in the believer that we are united. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit who unites us. So Jesus prays that there may be one, And that union is analogical, it is similar to the union between the Father and Son. But it is Christological and spiritual because it means that we are to be in Christ, we are to be joined to him. Let's be clear that no one can be a Christian who is outside of and apart from Christ. It is only as we are joined to him by the Holy Spirit in this mysterious but vital union that we are Christians. But there's something else I think that we should look at regarding the unity that Christ seeks of believers. Thirdly, this union that he seeks is missiological. Our Lord prays for a union, a union in love and in purpose and in holiness and truth. But this union is not an end in itself. In verse 21c, we see this. That They all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. And then, he says, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the union that he seeks is missiological. He doesn't simply want believers to be united in love and purpose and in the Spirit, but he wants them to be united for the purpose of proclaiming Christ. It is in union with Christ that we proclaim to the world that God has sent the Son. And what our Lord is saying is that as believers live in unity and reflect that unity to the world, they are proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. Now now, again, another clarification. We must not perceive that Jesus is saying that so long as Christians are living harmoniously there is nothing that rocks the boat people are living peacefully that the world is going to somehow look at that and say well we see christ among them no the the task of the church is to proclaim the gospel the good news of jesus christ but the only way the world is going to understand the message that we preach of a saving christ is when we are together reflecting in unity, love and peace and care and concern for one another. In other words, the evidential basis that the message of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is true depends and turns in no small measure on the life of unity and community lived by God's people. In other words, if we say to the world, Christ has come into the world to save us, but we are hating one another, backbiting, we are saying terrible things about each other, we are malicious and unkind in all that we do and say, the world will never believe that we have been transformed. In fact, they are not transformed and they are are behaving in that way. And we say that we have come to know Christ and are transformed, but we are living like them, they would never be convinced. So fundamentally, We need to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, but we also need to live out the good news of Christ in a life of harmony and unity. And so, by so living, the world will have proof that that the change that we have reflected as we live in unity and a unity rooted in love, that we have indeed met the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only so, as we demonstrate this love amongst ourselves, so we are able to speak to the world, That we have known the love of God. In other words, as we live in unity and a unity rooted in love, the world will come to understand that our love is supernatural. It is not normal. It is not human. It is given of God because it flows from the character of God who is love. And as we love one another, we will be able to say to the world that God is love. And here is the proof that we are living in love. And that he has loved us with a love that is similar to the love that he has for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find then this prayer. If we were to summarize it, it is a prayer for unity. That is a unity that is analogical. It resembles unity of the Father and Son. It is Christological because it is rooted in a relationship, a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is missiological because this unity will speak to the world of Jesus Christ who has come and God's love for his people. But there is a second prayer, a second request, not only for unity, but now a second petition that Jesus makes on behalf of future disciples. And this request that he makes is for glory for heavenly glory. In more specific terms, he prays that his future disciples will be with him to behold his glory. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, you see, these future disciples are given to him and are meant this point that not only are christians to see that jesus is god's gift to us but that we are god's gift to his son jesus christ and so he says in verse 24 father i desire that they also whom you gave me he refers to the elect those whom god knew from eternity and has given to jesus christ those whom you gave me may be with me where i am and that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. What is he praying for? He's praying that these believers, these believers who are being kept in unity by God, might ultimately one day behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Now let's reflect on this word doxa and kabod in the Old Testament. The term kabod in the Old Testament refers, yes, to God's glory. But what is God's glory? Well, God's glory referred to the outshining, the brilliance of God that is reflected visibly and outwardly. And so God's glory, God's brilliance, God's outshining was seen in the glory cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. And at night it it was like flaming fire. You saw some of God's glory in the Old Testament, that outward visible brightness of God when he came to Moses on the back side of the mountain, and the bush began to flame, and God was in the bush. God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle, and in the temple, in the Shekinah glory that dwelt above the angelic beings that covered the, uh, hovered above the mercy seat. It is a visible outshining of God's character. It's God in his luminous excellence. It's the splendor, the brilliance, and the majesty of God. And doxa retains that same meaning. The outshining, the brilliance of God. Now Jesus prays that they might be with him. And we see echoes of John 14, verse 1 and following, where Jesus says to the disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus is praying that these disciples, these future disciples may be with him that is in heaven. And he prays, secondly, that they might behold his glory. He says then in verse 24, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Now the glory that Jesus speaks of, how do we understand this? The disciples speak about the glory of God that they saw. The glory of God in terms of his revelation of the Father. So are the Beginning of John, the writer says the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. He is the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. There is a sense in which the glory of Christ was revealed to the apostles. Even though he had no form or comeliness, there was nothing about him that we should desire him. Even though though there was nothing physically spectacular about how Jesus looked. In fact, he was a man of sorrows. The disciples were able, as they interacted with him, to realize that he was the glorious God. Because he was full of grace and truth. He revealed the glory of God in his character. He was a repository of grace. The unmerited favor of God and truth. But he was also the one who was the wisdom of God and the power of God. So we saw his glory in his character, full of grace and truth and of wisdom and of love and of power. But his glory was also seen in his miraculous signs. So in John chapter 2, when you remember when our Lord Jesus turned water into wine at Canaan of Galilee, the scriptures teach us, There that this beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him in John 2.11. So his glory was seen not only in his character or in his person, but also in his work, particularly his miraculous works. The disciples also saw the glory of the Lord in the crucifixion and resurrection. Because even though the crucifixion appeared to be failure, Jesus understands his crucifixion to be exhortation. He would be lifted up. So we have him praying. Now, Father, glorify me together with your glory. The glory which you gave me before, or which I had with you before the world was. What is the glory he's speaking of? I want to suggest to you that the glory that our Lord seeks is not just the glory that is bound up with his character or with his work or even with the cross, though that is in itself tremendous. The glory that he seeks is the glory that he had in heaven. He's speaking about a heavenly glory. And he wants his future disciples and followers to see him in his full glory, in his eternal exaltation, in his exaltation in his exalted glory. That's a glory that we have a faint picture of in the Scriptures. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 6 that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what he had was a vision of the glorious God sitting upon his throne and his train, the train of his robe, engulfing the entire temple and the seraphims, the the holy attendants in heaven surrounded him and they were crying Holy! 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 That's a vision, a little glimpse of the glorious Christ In the book of Revelation, John tells us in chapter 1 that he's on the Isle of Patmos He's a prisoner He's placed there because he had been preaching the gospel He's been taken out of circulation, it seems. But there on the Isle of Patmos, he has a vision of the glorified Christ. And in John, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1, 13 and following, John says he heard a voice speaking to him, and when he turned around to see the speaker, this is what he sees. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice, the sound of many waters, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance, here it is, was like the sun shining in its strength. John, on the Isle of Patmos, saw something of the glory of Christ. Listen, as you read this description, you will notice how he uses comparative terms. He was like... Like He's not saying this is fully what he is. He says this is the best I can give you in terms of approximation. But he says his face was shining like the sun in its full strength. This is the glorified vision of Christ. And John says when he saw him, he fell down as though dead. This is the exalted Christ. This is not the man who merely walked on earth. The man who was ridiculed and jeered and strung up to die. This is the sovereign, exalted God. And he says, Father, I pray that they may be with me. That they may behold my glory. The glory of my exalted state as the supreme being and the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. I want them to see me in the fullness of my glory. And so Jesus' prayer for believers is that we may be united. United in love, in purpose, in truth, in holiness, in witness. And it is only by being united in Christ and by his spirit that we believers will one day see the glorious Christ. Having reflected on this, let me draw out a few applications and then conclude. First of all, all of us as believers must strive for unity. The unity that we have as Christians is real. It's created by the Spirit of God. But our task is to strive for unity, to maintain unity, and to strive for greater unity. But the unity for which Christians strive is not, let me clarify, first of all, organizational uniformity. When Jesus prays that they might be one, he's not saying that he's praying that all Christians should be under one big tent, one denomination. It is not organizational unity for which he prays. The church comprises believers of all ages and all cultures who do things differently. You just have to go down to Central America on a Sunday morning and you will see worship very differently. There are some churches where liturgy plays a heavy role and a tremendous role, where others do not have a church worship service that is liturgical in nature. This does not mean because there is variety and difference that the church is therefore disunited. One people said. One person years ago said, "You know, I I don't, I, I would not be a Christian because Christians are disunited." And said, so, "Well, how do you prove that Christians are united?" He says, "Well, they there are so many different denominations. I don't know which one to choose." But you see, what he failed to understand is that the union of believers is not to be seen in the fact that there are different denominations with different names. The union for which Christ prays is not fundamentally external or or, or physical. The union for which he's praying is a union that is spiritual. It is a union of heart and of mind and of purpose. We also need to make it plain that the union for which our Lord prays is not a union that is achieved by whittling down the truths of the gospel to an irreducible minimum. In other words, it is not a union that arises out of compromising biblical truth for the sake of consensus. I understand that there is great pressure in certain certain circles for the ecumenical movement where all Christians get together. We put aside our differences and we get together. My only problem with that is that when you try to do that, you invariably put aside vast swaths of biblical truth. You deny some of the cardinal things of the scriptures. So the union Jesus asking and asking the Father for is not a union based upon jettisoning biblical truth. No, the union that he desires is a union in the spirit, a union in truth. And let me be very clear: there is no true Christian unity without truth. It is truth, as revealed in the scripture, that defines Christian unity. This is spiritual unity, a unity where we are joined together in Christ. I want to say before I progress, that you, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you must be part of the church of Jesus Christ. I I am often nonplussed when I hear people say, yeah, I'll go to heaven. But they don't want to have anything to do with the church. They think they can worship God on their own way, and do things as they please. They can have a tangential or no connection with the church at all. But for you to be a Christian, you must be part of the church. There was a picture shown in centuries ago, a very famous picture of the Roman Catholic Church. And there was this boat on the sea, and in it were the cardinals and bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. And outside in the water, drowning, or apparently drowning, were everyone else. And the picture, what it meant was that nobody can be saved unless they were in the boat with the cardinals and bishops. And what the Roman Catholic Church was saying, that salvation could not be found in any other place but in the Roman Catholic Church. So unless you were there with the bishops and cardinals and all of these big wigs, you're not going to be saved. The church I'm talking about is not the Roman Catholic Church. What I'm talking about is the body of Christ. And one enters it by faith. One enters it by believing in Jesus Christ. One accepts the revelation of God that God has come to man in Jesus. That in Jesus we have seen God in his glory. And only by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ do we become Christians, but haven't become Christians by faith in Jesus Christ and faith in his death and resurrection. We must then demonstrate that we are part of that body of Christ by being joined to a local church. You see, the only way you can show you are part of the invisible church and the universal church is to be joined to a local body of God. Gospel preaching, Bible believing, holy living people. You must be baptized into the body of Christ. You must go through the waters of baptism and identify with the local church. You must use the gifts and the abilities that God has given you in membership of the church to serve Christ and his people. But you must be a part, as one writer, George Herbert, the poet, says, you must be a part of this little band. And even though the church is ridiculed and laughed at by the world, you must identify yourself with the people of God. Look, if you can't identify yourself with God's people on earth, you're not going to be able to identify yourself with them in heaven. Because it is only the church who will be in heaven. My question to you this morning is, are you a part of the body of Jesus Christ, the universal church, and are you demonstrating your membership there by being a part of a local congregation where you are living in unity and serving God's people and the interest of Jesus Christ? But let me say this. Though we have unity in Jesus, our unity here on earth is imperfect. We must therefore seek to perfect this unity. Our Lord Jesus prays in verse 23 that they may be perfect in one, that they may be made perfect. The word "they are perfect" is a verbal form, and it comes from the root "telos," that they may be brought to completion. Though we are in Christ and we have union with Him, our union on earth with God's people is imperfect. We need, therefore, to preserve unity, and to grow in unity. And if that is to occur, there are some things that we must avoid. We must avoid this attitude and speech and practices that promote disunity. We must put aside pride and self-interest, determining that our way and only our way can work. We must put aside jealousy and a judgmental spirit, that, that kind of spirit you know, that sees people in terms of how far they have to go rather than how far they have come. That critical, harsh, unloving spirit, that kind of hypocrisy which smiles with somebody but they are two-faced. You see, these attitudes and actions and speech must be removed if we are to live in unity. And we must demonstrate then love and humility and generosity of spirit. Love that that goes beyond merely saying, how are you doing, but caring for, helping out those who are in need. A practical, sacrificial love. We must be in this dark world, a community that shares. That if we have finances, we share with those who do not. That we are there to bear their burdens, to help them along as they struggle. Because that's the kind of love that's going to speak to the world. A love not only in word, but a love in deed. When Christopher Wren, the great architect, was building St. Paul's Cathedral in London, a man went on the site and he spoke to a worker and he said to him, What are you doing? And he says, I am shaping a stone. He turned to another worker and he said to him, what are you doing? The man said, I'm making a living. He turned to a third man and he said, what are you doing? And he said, I am helping Sir Christopher Wren to build a cathedral. I don't know how you see yourself in the church of God. But you need to have a vision of your calling to be part of God's people. As a calling to greatness. A calling to serve and to help Christ. In the building up of his church. In the promoting of his interest. And the reason that we live in unity. Is not because we want to have peace for peace sake. We live in unity and love. Because we want to promote the great cause of Christ in the world. But not only must we live in unity. We must set our sights on the glory of Christ. I believe that the quest for glory defines much of life. We see the quest for glory this evening we're going to have two teams fighting it on the court to win the basketball championship. What are they seeking? They're seeking glory. We have our young people who are posting videos of themselves on YouTube singing because they want to be discovered. What are they seeking? They're seeking glory. Others post pictures of themselves on Instagram. They want to be seen as beautiful. We're seeking glory. Others live seeking to have glittering careers or seek to attain material possession, fancy cars and palatial homes. You see, fundamentally there is a drive Amongst us, an existential drive for glory. And yet the glory that we seek is vain. It disappears without notice. It fades like a flower in the noonday sun. Human glory is vanity, and that is why Solomon says, Vanity of vanity, all tute vanity. But there is a glory that will never, ever fade. It's the glory of the exalted Christ. And we, if we are to live in this world, if we are to have luster injected in this world over which in a large, to a large extent there is the word Ichabod written, the glory has departed. If we are to live in a life of refreshment and a life of beauty in the banality of this world, in the dullness of our existence, if we are to know true glory, we must see the glory of Christ. We must know that the Christ who walked this earth has been exalted to heaven and he's reigning in brilliance. And we must see him. And as we see him, know that what Christ requires is not merely that we will see his glory, but participate in his glory. You see, when we see his glory, it moves us to Adoration. That's why the the heavenly beings, the 24 elders in heaven are bowing down before the throne because they see him in his glory. And when we see him in his glory, it's going to lead us to love and to wonder and to praise. You see, seeing his glory is going to lead us not only to adoration, it's going to lead us to transformation. So John says in 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That as as we see Christ in his glory in heaven, we also are going to be changed to be glorious like him. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, that we with unveiled faces are beholding as in a mirror that is indirectly We are beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord And as we behold his glory We are being transformed From one degree of glory Unto another by the Lord The Spirit You see in this life as we think upon Christ And meditate upon him In all the glory of his person and work We are being changed But when we see him as he is, we will be fully and perfectly like him. You see, that vision we will have of Christ is a transforming vision. It leads to adoration. It leads to transformation. But the vision of Christ that we will have leads to to satisfaction. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 17 verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. When we see him, it leads to adoration. It leads to transformation. But it leads to satisfaction. That when we see Christ in all his blazing glory, we shall be satisfied. All our needs will be met. Make it your goal then to live out a life of unity and peace with God's people. Promoting the glory and interest of Christ. And set your sight on Jesus the glorious one. See him now in your glory. And anticipate the glory that awaits you when you see him as he is. Live in unity and pursue his glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.